Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, today, Kenna, I wanted to ask you, how do you define bribery? Bribery? Uh... <laughs> I, I wish I had something like the Oxford Dictionary. No, no, just I mean, what you think of. Bribery is when you do something. To me, bribery is always opaque. It's not transparent. You're like, I am giving someone money or favors, and because, like, kind of like in the dark, because if it was out in the open, it would be looked down upon or it would be unethical. So, like, that's, I guess that's how I would describe it. It'd be like, uh, I don't know. I guess, like, I think of, like, another level of, like, that would be, like, uh, blackmailing someone. Right. But not in the same level of bribery, but... So, like, you're giving someone something with the understanding that they will do something you want them to do. Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. So, how do you define political lobbying? Um, like, a corporation's just like, hey, uh, we'd love to donate to your campaign, and what about... Uh, you know, giving money for light bulbs or whatever we manufacture, oil, gas, you know. So what do you think the difference is between them? Uh, probably in my mind, not much. Yeah, <laughs> not much, right? <laughs> like, I know you can lobby people and be like, hey, we need to make, like, I know there probably are some groups that's like, hey, we want to make schools safer or we want to make you know, the road's safer. We want to, like, make more forests. But I don't think of that happens very much. Yeah, they don't have as much power. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I was thinking about this. And to me, I'm like, what's the difference? They're pretty much the same thing, right? But weirdly, bribery is illegal. And lobbying in the United States is very much legal, perfectly acceptable, and even, like, structured into our political process. Um, And I found this quote from this lobbyist, Jack Abramoff, who said, you can't take a congressman to lunch and buy $25 or spend $25 to buy him a steak, but you can take him to a fundraising lunch and not only buy him that $25 steak, but also give him $25,000 more and call it a fundraiser. Yes, I feel like the the lobbying rules are just like, they're structured in a way to where people in power or who know about the legal system can do whatever they want. Yeah, so I was thinking a lot about this and obviously I wanted to do today's episode about lobbying because it is so, like you mentioned earlier, it's not transparent, it's opaque, it's murky, it's weird, and these people are doing all this stuff and we don't really understand it. So a brief summary of lobbying for anyone not quite familiar, I thought I knew but I like wasn't quite sure when I started looking this up. Um, It's an organization of people with a similar goal attempting to influence lawmakers to create laws and regulations that serve their interests. So sometimes that group of similar people can be, like you said, people who are united with a common uh, goal to like make schools safer or fix roads. But most of the time, they're just corporations. So lobbyists usually influence lawmakers through financial contributions. Sometimes it's also done, though, through media influence to the public. Mm. Like, they'll go this roundabout way to try to get the public on board with their campaign to pressure and influence politicians that way. Mm, Like, kind of like those Prop 22 commercials. Which ones were those? That was, I saw, like, whenever I turned on regular TV, which was very rare, you'd see those commercials, like, vote no on Prop 22 because, like... 
drivers need to drive. It was the Uber Lyft one. Oh, where yes, they couldn't exactly. unionize. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But um, I think that may have been a referendum, but I, I see how you could do that for like a certain cause. Yes. Um, so that is something that does happen sometimes. Typically it is through financial contributions though to politicians. And usually it's done by targeting specific politicians with politicians with campaign donations. So it is a gray area where it's illegal to give money directly to a politician because that would be considered bribery, but it is legal to donate campaign contributions to a politician's election or re-election campaign. Ugh, it's just like, you, like, with all the, like, like, corporate white-collar crime, it's just like, wow, is just anything bad legal? Like, you can make it legal if you are like in the know or like a rich white guy yeah exactly if you have power and money nothing's illegal they just stop a different name on it and it's totally okay (laughs) so while this exchange is not explicitly transactional it's implicitly transactional politicians know that if they want to get reelected, they need money to campaign and if that money is coming from a special interest lobbying group it's in their best interest to keep them happy so lobbying is like really prevalent in the united states But I didn't quite know how prevalent. Um, But in 2020, in the United States, lobbyists spent over $3.5 billion attempting to influence legislation. And out of that, $2.6 billion is corporate lobbying alone, which is more than the combined budget of the Senate and the House, which is $860 million for the Senate and $1.18 billion for the House of Representatives. So lobbyists spent more trying to buy politicians than the U.S. government spent giving salaries to U.S. politicians Mm. in a year. I don't see how that could be bad. (laughs) (laughs) Labor unions and other public interest groups, by contrast, spend $1 compared to every $34 that businesses spend on lobbying. Yeah, and people try to paint it out like the unions are in the politicians' pockets. Like, really? It seems like it's corporations. Definitely. And, you know, um, unions, if you're a union, like... According to recent data, you're likely to earn 30% more than if you're not union. So it's like the opposite, actually. We have corporate lobbying interests have killed unions mm-hmm. through politicians rather than the reverse. So what of the 100 organizations that spend the most on lobbying annually, consistently 95 are businesses. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. So examples of some of these top spending companies and groups include Southern Company, which is um, an American gas and electric utilities Hmm. company. Not surprising, especially with all the stuff that went on in Texas with the utilities companies. And also here in California with Mm PG&E, they've done some like really sketchy things. Uh, The second one is Facebook. That's not disturbing. I'm kind of not surprised. Okay, (laughs) lately whenever I've been listening to an NPR podcast, they're like, sponsored by Facebook, we want new internet regulations that help bring us into the 21st century. And I'm like, I feel like the regulations you want are not, you know, like what would be good, but you're making it sound like we just, we want the same thing as you. And I'm like, I don't believe you. Yeah, I don't believe that Facebook's interests are aligned with mine. Like, the one, like, media conglomerate that has all the personal data of, like, every single human being on the planet and then sells it for profit, I cannot imagine that they have my best interests at heart. Yeah. So another one um, in this list is Lockheed Martin, which, Uh you know, the people who make the big guns and shitty malfunctioning airplanes. They are, I I feel like they're why, we we talked about this on an earlier episode about the military budget. This is why we can't have nice things like you can't end homelessness because all our shit 
for the military is so goddamn expensive. Right. So we're consistently overspending on these Lockheed Martin products and harrowing figures that outpace like our environmental protection budget by leaps and bounds annually. And these are the people also lobbying the government with some of the, the biggest spending that we see annually. There's also the Internet and Television Association. There's also Bayer, the pharmaceutical oh, company. Oh, like aspirin? Yes. Ooh, I think, uh, I don't think they have a very good history either. I should look into this <laughs> yeah. at some point. I'm like, from what I remember, mm, they, their their foundings were in... Right, they're German. I I feel like this was something I read in the past. So I'm okay. like, oh, that kind of makes sense. We gotta look up. We, we gotta, gotta look, look it up. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. And then there's Northrop Grumman, which is another one of those ridiculous weapons manufacturers who the, likes to the, charge... The boom boom makers. The boom boom makers. <laughs> the people who like to charge the US military like I $100 do, for a nail. I do not want to go into that boom boom room. <laughs> the lobbying room. The lobbying the, boom boom gun. room. And it's just explosions. <laughs> no champagne. No champagne is in that boom boom room. <laughs> Um, there's also Amazon. Shock, shock. Surprise, surprise. There's also Boeing. Surprise, surprise. Another, what, weapons and, uh... Well, they do, like, aerospace things, but... They do it, like, on a commercial level, but also in the military-industrial complex. They're a component. Um, AT&T, the American Medical Association, Hmm. uh, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google... And then there's this group called Business Roundtable, which is literally just a group of CEOs who push for public policy that backs their own interests. So I'm sure that has nothing to do with why our minimum wage hasn't risen in forever. Okay, that reminds me of, like, I don't know if you remember the Simpsons episode where, like, all the people, like, in the Republican Party meet together. And it's, like, Mr. Burns and, like, Dracula and, like, all these, like, other CEOs. And that's what I think of. That's that. That is the Business Roundtable group. Yes. Um, there's also Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, which, you know, if you're not seeing the connection to why we can't have universal health care in the U.S. yet, I, I'm, we will see it more later. Yeah, I'm kind of seeing the connection to, like, oh, like, oh, we can't have, uh, like, our mili- we can't have, you know, nice things because our military budget. We can't regulate the internet because of Facebook. We can't, like, have health insurance because, like... Not to not to make connections where they're not there or put on a tinfoil hat, but I'm like, I'm maybe seeing some connections here. There are some connections. Um, there's also the American Hospital Association, which is similarly telling, like with the medical stuff. And the top three lobbying spenders are, number one, the National Association of Realtors. Hmm. And, and there's... You know, maybe some sort of housing crisis that I have heard of somewhere. And what's really interesting about them is that their whole thing is like, well, we want every American to be able to buy a house because that's good for realtors. The more people buy houses. But the way they go about it, obviously, like, the idea of affordable housing is based on, like, the idea that any American can buy a house, right? It's it's intrinsically exclusionary. So it ends up just, like, fostering gentrification at every Mm -hmm. opportunity because what it means is that white middle class upwardly mobile young people can buy houses can buy this quote-unquote affordable housing that like these uh like the national association of realtors and all these housing advocates are pushing for but it like denies the reality that most low-income americans like will not be seen as upwardly mobile and cannot buy a house so anyway that one's like a real complicated one because when you read what they're going after on the surface level you're like they want affordable housing and they actually advocated um, for an eviction moratorium mm-hmm. because they wanted to keep people in houses. So on the surface, that one looks like maybe this one's actually weirdly okay. And then you dig deeper and you're like, oh, it's only okay 
for lower middle class white people. It's gone. Yeah, and their probably biggest fear, which they probably, you know, I, it's so weird how, like, I think that, like, sometimes companies' biggest fears probably wouldn't happen, but is probably that, like, oh, what if they, what if we just housed everybody and housing was free? <laughs> right, exactly. Or what if we just, like, um, you know, did a, uh, like, uh, what is it, like, they're, I, I'm guessing their biggest fear is probably state-owned housing. Yeah, so it's like this weird thing where they're like almost kind of doing good things, but within this very narrow scope of what works for them. They're like, don't evict people, then we won't have customers. Which I'm like, okay, don't evict people is nice. You yeah, know? <laughs> like they're like, but they're like the true goal would be everybody housed, but yes. that's actually not in their best interest because they can't make a profit off that. Right, exactly. So then um, the second of the top three lobbying spenders is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is just a network of business owners, basically. Mm-hmm. So business interests. And then the third one is Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. <gasps> Why am I not surprised at any of the yeah, so things on this list? What can you imagine some of the goals of these top three groups would be? Um, oh, gee, I wonder. <laughs> uh, de- defeating uh, universal health care would be my first mm-hmm. instinct. Um, protecting business interests by keeping wages low and keeping employers, like, off the hook for accountability for mm-hmm. their employees. And, yeah, trying to protect the interests of uh, real estate, which they, they put the rosy thing on it and say it's for individuals to be able to buy homes. But it also protects the interests of commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. It's not the National Association of, like, private home realtors it's all realty which includes commercial real estate yeah. development i feel like the thing with all of like that's in common with all of these or most of these is that they benefit actually very few people and those very few people are majority uh shareholders and stakeholders in a very few companies that is very like, true i'm like wait is literally our entire society based on enriching like a hundred people? It is. It very much <laughs> is. Yes. And for all this money that these people spend, they, they do get huge returns. Oh, I'm sure. So one recent study found that, quote, on average for every dollar spent on influencing politics, the nation's most politically active corporations received $760 from the government. So that's a 76,000% return on investment. Yeah, that's that's higher than if you put it in the stock market or Bitcoin or whatever. Like that's a huge return on investment. Like huge. If you are a smart company that I would be like if I were doing the like, you know, the evil. the the evil laugh um style uh lifestyle, evil Laugh style, laugh. Oh, I like we'll that. work on it. Laugh style, evil I would, laugh style, <laughs> evil laugh style. I would be pouring so much fucking money into lobbying. Yeah, and it's um paying off in like all these ways. Like federal contracts were found to be more likely to be awarded to firms that had given federal campaigns higher contributions, even after controlling for previous contract awards. Wow, shocking, right? Uh, The most active organizations are now hiring over 100 lobbyists just per organization to represent them. And in many cases, lobbyists go so far as to write laws themselves. Oh, I, when I, you know what was funny? When I was younger um, and I was more into reading like political books, there was like, uh, I read all about like how lobbyists were like, yeah, they were drafting laws and just handing them to state senate basically and they're especially about um gun laws there's a lot of examples of these and just you know for reference most lobbyists are just 
private interests. You know, they're, they're not elected officials, but there is this weird crossover where sometimes they are elected officials and that's even worse. So there are these people who have this huge influence over corporate America, over the private and public sector, over politicians. And yeah, they're literally just inventing the, the laws they wished existed to benefit themselves and their clients and then giving them to their buddies who work in the government. And they're like, do this one. So like a good example of this is the 2014 omnibus budget deal. So this is the deal that made the expensive bank bailouts from the Great Recession fall on the shoulders of taxpayers by repealing a law preventing taxpayers from bailing out big banks that engage in risky derivative trading. So 70 of the 85 lines in that bill came from a sample law drafted by Citigroup lobbyists, you know, the bank that played a huge role in the 2008 financial crisis and received billions of dollars in federal bailout money. Mm. So some parts of the bill were literally copied word for word, meaning Citibank got to write their own laws about how they as a bank are governed. And the members of Congress who backed this bill all received, you guessed it, huge amounts of campaign contributions via fundraisers. Yeah, and let me guess, um, a lot of times when these um, government officials quote unquote retire they become lobbyists they do or their staff becomes lobbyists and then their ex-staff are the people who are now lobbying them and they're like oh kevin i remember you from when you were in the office oh you're a lobbyist now let's go have lunch like exactly i'm sure that yeah where it's just like or like you know there's a huge there's a you know great example of this in the um people that regulate the banks a lot of times the regulators like at the sec will be like well the people who I'm regulating make a ton more money than me, so they quit or they retire and go work for the big banks they used to regulate. So this is totally true, and I have some info about that coming up like really, really shortly. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's like so much info about it. Okay, so, um, but back on like the actual bills being written, lobbyists for the chemical industry authored entire portions of a bill that shut down state-based efforts to crack down on toxic chemicals. Oof. And lobbyists for one oil company quote, largely wrote, is how this is worded, a bill about drilling for fossil fuels in an environmentally sensitive area where it had property. Oh, where is Erin Brockovich when you need her? Exactly. Um, so yeah, another key way though that the lobbyists influence government is through job offers, like what you were talking about. So lobbyists will literally offer politicians lucrative jobs while they are still in office for when they leave office. And the salaries for these positions are multiple millions of dollars per year. So Congress people are offered these jobs all the time. And then the Congress people are in turn uh, interested in serving their future employers. So they will do whatever they need to to ensure they have a multi-million dollar job in two years. Um, here's another quote from former lobbyist Jack Abramoff. I would say to the Congress member, when you're done working on the Hill, we'd very much likely do, like you to consider coming to work for us. The moment I said that, we owned them. And what does that mean? Every request from our office, every request of our clients, everything that they want, uh, they're going to do. And that's yeah, just from sure. offering a job, dangling a job offer in front of them. This sounds like, uh, like this, I, just from my brief knowledge of The Godfather and um, um, it, this sounds like organized crime. It kind of is organized <laughs> crime because yeah, there's like an implicit understanding that like, we're going to do this for you and you're going to look out for us and we've got each other's back. Um, and there's a name for this, this uh, relationship between like lobbyists and politicians. It's called the revolving door. Oh yeah. So in the 1970s, less than 5% of retiring politicians became lobbyists, but now it's half of all retiring senators and a third of all retiring house members. So Congress people who become lobbyists usually encounter a 1,452% raise after they leave 
their political Yeah, job. and they're probably really fucking good at it because, again, they're like, hey, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> remember when we used to work together? Let's go get lunch, buddy. Yes, exactly. Let they me have- tell you about... Boom booms. <laughs> they have all the connections and they call this access. Um, and this doesn't even touch on this thing called shadow lobbyists who through loopholes in the federal definition of lobbying get to basically have lobbying jobs without ever formally formally registering as lobbyists. So usually a lobbyist has to has to register with the government mm-hmm. and be like, hey, I'm a lobbyist. This is an official thing. But there's all these examples of politicians who are effectively lobbyists without ever registering while they're still in office. So examples include Senator Tom Daschle, who was a Democrat from South Dakota, and uh, Representative Newt Gingrich, who's a Republican from Georgia, who make just as much money as formal lobbyists do. Because of these shadow lobbyists, some people estimate that there's actually two times as much lobbying as reported going on in Washington. Well, I think, wasn't there, there was something in the the Trump White House where, because isn't that what Rudy Giuliani and like Jared Kushner got for was not, or like a bunch of people were in trouble for not registering as lobbyists. Yes, I'm he not, had I, a huge amount of people. I mean, every administration has been doing this since the 70s, but his in particular, like almost every single person on his payroll was off, also a lobbyist. Yeah. This was a major thing that happened. It was like a scandal. Um, so failing to register as a lobbyist, though, is actually super common. Uh, in the United States. In 1991, the General Accounting Office revealed that over 10,000 lobbyists working in the U.S. government had failed to register. And of those who did register, 94% didn't complete their registration forms properly as legally required. And there's not much incentive to do it because the Department of Justice has never brought criminal charges against anyone for failing to register as a lobbyist. Not that I'm for bureaucracy or paperwork, but it's like, damn, you can't sign up for anything without like filling out the paperwork yet yeah these people are doing how can they not finish the paperwork it's an important job we all have to do it we all have to do it (laughs) if this is the system we're using why are certain people exempt and why are those people who are exempt consistently people with the most power in society that's the issue so the result of this um according to a washington post article written by lee drutman an author who specializes in business lobbying Quote, it is increasingly difficult to challenge any existing policy that benefits politically active corporations. Though corporate lobbying has become more ambitious and more aggressive over the years, the top priority for most corporate lobbyists is still preserving the status quo. When I surveyed corporate lobbyists on the reasons why their companies maintained a Washington presence, the top reason was to protect the company against changes in government policy. On a one to seven scale, lobbyists ranked this reason at 6.2 on average. So the spread of lobbying has created an environment where in order to get any bill or legislation passed, you now need a ton of lobbyists just to get your message heard. And those lobbyists cost money, which means you need a ton of money to make any changes now. It's becoming increasingly rare to make any change on economic policy unless you have a major corporation supporting you. According to the International Journal Interest Groups and Advocacy from October 2017, the sheer number of lobbyists in the United States is growing. Democratic systems vary significantly in who their lobbying laws require to register and what information must be publicly disclosed. Lobbying laws are often the products of lobbying scandals, but are rarely updated subsequently to account for changes in the way lobbying is done. Elected officials who benefit from the work of lobbyists are reluctant to enact reforms. Even the people and corporations who employ lobbyists do not always know what they are doing and have difficulty holding them accountable. Lobbyist accountability would be significantly strengthened by expanding the definitions of what lobbying actually is. And accountability would be further aided by public disclosures of the positions lobbyists are actually lobbying for. So um, this is kind of the scope of lobbying in the U.S. right now, which is 
pretty scary. You basically have all these rich people who are friends with politicians and who sometimes are politicians uh, trading jobs with each other to pass laws that benefit big corporate interests. And anybody who doesn't have a ton of financial backing is not able to get their position heard in any capacity, which is why it seems like we have all these laws existing in the U.S. that um, are just there to serve corporate interests. They literally are. They're literally made by corporations to serve their own interests. And some of the most shocking lobbying results um, that I encountered while looking this up include the cigar lobby. Do you know about this? No. Okay. So for years, cigars fought to not be lumped in with cigarettes by saying like cigarette legislation for sure go after them we're a totally different thing man like we are healthy we are different <laughs> um, despite the fact that cigars are actually more harmful than cigarettes so according to the national cancer institute cigars and cigar smoke contain higher concentrations of toxic cancer causing chemicals that are harmful to smokers and non-smokers more than cigarettes do and increase the risk of cancer in smokers and people exposed to secondhand and thirdhand smoke. Cigar smoke also significantly increases your risk of cancer for the larynx, esophagus, lung, and oral cavity, which includes the mouth, tongue, and throat. And if you smoke cigars, you have four to 10 times the risk of dying from oral laryngeal, which I think is like like laryngitis, laryngeal, mouth Mm. area, or esophageal cancers compared to a non-smoker. Cigar smoke contains higher levels of cancer-causing nitrosamines than cigarette smoke, There's more cancer-causing tar in cigars than cigarettes. Just like cigarettes, the more cigars you smoke, the greater your risk of cancer. Cigar smoke has also been linked to a higher risk of several other types of cancer, including pancreatic, kidney, bladder, stomach, uh, colon, cervical, liver, and uh, myeloid leukemia. But despite this, the cigar industry actually successfully lobbied for decades to create an image that cigars were not harmful and should be legally designated differently than cigarettes. Hmm. Uh, The second one is for-profit prison lobbying. The two largest prison companies alone have spent over $35 million on lobbying and campaign contributions to state and local officials since 1989. And the result is that the number of prisoners housed in private facilities has jumped 1,600% since 1990. So CoreCivic and GEO Group, which we've talked about before in our prison episode, are the two largest private prison companies in the United States. They have funneled more than $10 million directly to lawmakers since 1989, just the two of them alone. And according to Justice Policy Institute, quote, over the years, these political strategies have allowed private prison companies to promote politics that lead to higher rates of incarceration and thus greater profit margins for their companies, end quote. Successful lobbying by for-profit prison results in new harsher laws that lock up more people for lesser crimes with longer minimum sentences. According to represent.us, nearly every private prison deal includes a bed mandate that requires the state to fill 90 to 100% of the beds in privately owned detention facilities. This means that taxpayers are mandated to either lock up more people or pay the private prison companies for empty beds. So you, the taxpayer, are paying for that. Uh, These corporate prisons have acknowledged that their own success relies on the continued illegality of things like drug-related offenses, directly impacting the causes they lobby in support of at a federal and state level. So if you're wondering why there's all this outdated drug policy, it's because for-profit prisons benefit from us making drugs illegal and keeping them illegal. And they also benefit in terms of uh, immigration, Oh. Yeah, they have, like, a lot of lobbying stake in our immigration laws because mm. the more we can make, like, immigration-based crimes illegal, the more they profit as well. Oh, because of detention centers. Yes, and this is also something we saw play out at the state level in Arizona. Remember with that, that, remember, Arpaio? 
Oh. Yeah, they had all the the prisons where they had um they were locking up like immigrants and making them do like manual labor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was like a huge scandal in Arizona going on. So um a third place that we see like really shocking, like harrowing, horrific lobbying results is in pharmaceutical companies and healthcare. Big surprise. So this one's pretty major. From 1999 to 2018, the pharmaceutical and health product industry recorded $4.7 billion, which is an average of $233 million per year in lobbying expenditures at the federal level, way more than any other industry. The industry spent $414 million on contributions to candidates in presidential and congressional elections, national party committees, and outside spending groups. Of this amount, $22 million went to presidential candidates and $214 million went to congressional candidates. Of the 20 senators and 20 representatives who received the most contributions, 39 belonged to committees with jurisdiction over health-related legislative matters, 24 of them in senior positions. Mm. The key goal of pharmaceutical lobbying is to kill Medicare for all in the U.S., which is, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, our effort in the U.S. to establish universal health care. Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, a group comprised of major drug makers, insurance companies, and private hospitals, spent 2019 lobbying members of Congress, running online ads, and working with the media to drive down popularity of Medicare for All, which is the single-payer health platform that continues to gain popularity in the Democratic Party. The partnership includes some of the biggest names in healthcare industry, including the American Medical Association, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, who literally abbreviates to pharma, um, big pharma, they're right there. <laughs> Federation of American Hospitals and Blue Cross Blue Shield. John McDonough, a Harvard health professor who helped craft the Affordable Care Act, said he would hear from healthcare lobbyists daily while working on that bill. The Intercept obtained an internal document noting healthcare lobbyists were successful in getting congressional Democratic candidates to adopt the partnership's moderate position on healthcare, such as improving the Affordable Care Act rather than just providing a universal healthcare mm. option. Partnership for America's Healthcare Future recently launched efforts to get the public on their side too. This group has spent at least $80,594 on Facebook ads since it released its first ads in late January, and at least $13,000 on Twitter ads, trying to convince the American people that they actually don't want free healthcare, which we talked about earlier, how they run these campaigns that are kind of like PSYOP campaigns, you know, to try to get people on their side. Um, on another note, okay, do you remember the guy who became the most hated man in America over the drug price hikes oh, a few the years Martin ago? Oh, Shrekley? Yes, yes. Okay, Martin Sh- Shrekley. Shrekley? Shrekley. Shrekley. I can't oh, pronounce anything. I, yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but he was the CEO of biotech company Turing Pharmaceuticals, who in 2015 decided to hike up the price of Daraprim, a drug used to treat a rare infection by more than 5,000% overnight. So the New York Times ran an article on it, um, calling him the most hated man in America. And his company hired lobbyists to get Congress on his side. So in May of 2016, representatives from major pharmaceutical and biotech investment funds called a meeting with prominent industry lobbyists and executives and told them they needed to do a better job defending their pricing practices. Yeah, and I'm. this is probably exactly... Because they're like, oh, we want to raise insulin by a thousand percent. We, you know, we want to be able to do... Like, you know, like the price of certain drugs just have skyrocketed recently. Like the price of EpiPens. Yeah. Like, what... And also, side note, that market, Martin Shrekley guy, he purchased that one Wu-Tang album that they're like, we're only pressing one <gasps> copy and you can't... No, you can't let anyone else listen to it. He bought that. Wow. I hate these... They think they're so edgy. It's like how... <laughs> 
you're literally just like a rich pharma bro and you're out here buying Wu-Tang albums? Well, I don't even think, well, I feel like I read this whole thing where he was actually like, an. it's like all about like investment strategy company. They're not actually doctors or doing right. like healthcare or anything. Okay, so in 2017, talking about like how a major focus is the freedom to price drugs at whatever they want, this is actually another key part of healthcare lobbying. So they kind of have this two-pronged approach. Like one, they don't want universal or free healthcare for the United States. And two, they want within the system that does exist, the ability to price their drugs at whatever they want. And they don't like the existing Medicare system because the existing Medicare system involves um, negotiating with drug companies for drug prices on behalf of the people who are on Medicare. So in 2017, that group Pharma reported lobbying on prescription drug costs and pricing and legislative issues related to access to pharmaceuticals in an effort to keep drug prices exorbitantly high in the U.S. That same year, there were 153 companies and organizations also lobbying Congress to keep drug prices high. Gilead Sciences spent over $2.6 million lobbying in 2017, and they are notorious for charging exorbitantly high prices for products. One drug known to cure hepatitis is $84,000 per treatment. Oh my gosh, I take Humira and it's like 60K a year list price. It's wild. So they've recently been a target for drug price reform advocates because these prices are so high, um, leading them to lobby the government to defend these extremely high prices in order to maximize profits. A key target of their lobbying is also opposing Medicare. Uh, And the worst part is that they are really successful. Remember the Prescription Drug Affordability Act of 2015 spearheaded by Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. along with Elijah Cummings? Yeah, that thing never even made it to vote. And you know why? Like 15 corporations and organizations lobbied to kill that thing before anyone could even formally introduce it. Former Secretary of Health and Human Services Tom Price, who also served in the U.S. House of Representatives for 12 years, had three of his former staffers become lobbyists, lobbying his Department of Health and Human Services on several medical issues, including drug prices. Mm. Matt McGinley, his former chief of staff for six years, now runs his own lobby shop where he advocates for, quote, market-based solutions to bring down the cost of drug prices. And these people brag about having access to key politicians, to their clients on issues like this. I hate it here. I hate it here. Um, So the fourth thing that was really shocking and jarring is defense spending, which we talked about a little bit. Uh, Doesn't it feel like the U.S. is always engaged in an endless war that doesn't quite make sense? Yes. Yes, that's because of defense lobbying. So in the past two decades, corporate defense company lobbyists spent $285 million in campaign contributions and $2.5 billion more in miscellaneous lobbying to influence defense policy. The five biggest spenders in 2020 were Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, and General Dynamics. The result, $175 billion worth of weapon sales alone in that one year. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken both consulted for a private equity firm that emphasized its, quote, access, network, and expertise in the defense industry. In fact, 73% of the 663 lobbyists employed by defense companies in 2020 formally worked for the federal government. Uh. 73% of them. 95 former Pentagon officials represented the top five defense contractors via lobbying in 2016, and there are hundreds of defense industry lobbyists with defense department backgrounds. The result of this, a defense budget that increases every year to astronomical new heights, rife with overspending on bloated private defense contracts that only serve the military industrial complex. Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes told investors in January of this year that, quote, peace is not going to break out in the Middle East anytime soon. 
and that the region remains an area where we will continue to see solid growth. Uh, Horrifying. So the fifth place that um, this was interesting to me was Big Oil, you know? This one was really interesting to me, though, because remember the Tea Party movement of, like, 2010? Oh, yeah. Remember how it was huge and it was everywhere and it was all these people like, get your government off of me or whatever. They, it was just like yeah. a libertarian extremist yeah. party or whatever. Okay. Did you know that was funded and think tanked by big oil via Coke Industries? Like the Coke brothers? I think I did. Because I, I got really, this. I was like, got really into like, for a while, like stuff like that, like Coke brothers and like, at, like reading about like, I like you know, like the long piece art, the long think articles about Jack Abramoff and all that stuff. This yeah. is like, you know, like latter end of Bush, early Obama era. I was like really into it, like kind of borderline, like conspiracy tinfoil hat style. But then I'm like, wait, this is just a really banal, boring conspiracy. And it's real. And it's real. Like people want to think the conspiracies with like, I don't know lizard people and aliens aliens are all but honestly the real conspiracy is dun 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 capitalism capitalism it's capitalism (laughs) rich people don't care about us rich people don't care about us it's like it's just the accumulation of wealth at any expense yeah well the tea party thing really blew my mind because it was so major in 2010 and it really looked like far right like republican organic grassroots that's organizing. They call that AstroTurf. They do. They call it AstroTurf because it's a fake grassroots organization designed to influence political opinion with fake voices of the masses. So the Tea Party movement was specifically designed to make anti-regulation laws popular in politics so the oil industry could go well, ahead and do whatever they want. They basically. wrap it up because they make it like I feel like but people get on board because it makes it seem like well, this this is a part of our identity as, like, Americans. Like, we're free and rough and tumble. And honestly, like, American machismo, which affects... Or, like, I don't know, like, the... I don't know what you'd call it because it's not... It's more specific to, like, macho-type shit, but it's just like, don't tread on me, like... It's rugged individualism. It's, and, like, hyper-masculinity. Where it's, like, People think that it's them being tied up and being like, I'm an individual, I have freedom, but they don't realize what, like, what they're signing up for. It's like, actually, it's not your individual freedom. It is you are giving power to a big entity that actually would impact your freedom to live the way that you want. Right, exactly. It's like you're not being free. You're actually being a pawn. Somebody yeah. has tricked and manipulated you and you are a victim of the system and you are you think that you're making these decisions of your own free will, but you're not. So anybody who got on board with that Tea Party movement in 2010, well, that's because oil lobbyists spent $169 million lobbying in 2009 to make this organization seem like real, like something you should be interested in all in an effort to increase public sentiment about deregulation and lack of government oversight and influence in general. I'm so sick of just the prevalence and acceptance of grifters yes, in this country. Yes, they're grifting. Like, it's it's ba- it's like, I hate to use snake oil uh, sales, but because I, I listened to a podcast and snake oil actually worked. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but I mean, they're, like, they're selling, like, of basically quackery like yeah. in just every form where it's just like and it just makes me so 
mad. <laughs> well, it's really interesting, too, because you know how, like, right-wing people are so, like, against identity politics? Uh-huh. What we see time and time again is that they are actually the most susceptible to identity politics. Because if you position your whole identity on, I did it myself, nobody helped me, I can do it, I can do it. What you're doing is making yourself rife for manipulation by these companies who benefit from a lack of government interference and in absolutely anything, mm-hmm. right? And what they do is they come to you and they say, you're a rugged individualist. You did it all on your own. Let like big oil do it all on our own too. And they they play off of your identity, support their corporate and financial interests, yeah. which at the end of the day goes into continuing to underpay their workers and mistreat their employees. And guess what? You could be one of those workers. Maybe if not directly for big oil, or other similar lobbying groups. Mm-hmm. Like, you're actively voting against your own best interests because you're so tied to your identity and who you are as, like, a rugged individualist that you're hurting yourself. Yeah, and honestly, I don't know how you think that being a rugged... If you are a person who is like, I am a individualist, I like myself, and I want to be free and rugged... That I don't know how that ties into giant corporations, right? Like, These but are somehow not... it's become intertwined. Where like, I don't know. Like sometimes you know you've heard like when people are like when someone's like, I think you're gonna cheat on me. Like, are you sure you're not gonna cheat on me? And they're cheating. It's projection. It's projection. <laughs> it's just like it's almost like weird like reverse psychology where corporations are like the opposite of a rugged individual but they're like but we're rugged individuals too yes when you're like ah quit it's, gaslighting us it's like the steve buscemi meme where he shows up in the high school with the backwards baseball cap and he's like hello f- fellow youths it's like that's the corporations they show up next to like individual like working americans and they're like hello fellow hard-working individuals Which yeah like, wait you're not hard-working individuals you're like rich fucking slimy politicians who now have these cush oil like lobbying jobs where you make millions of dollars a year to fuck us all over yeah so the last one i found that was a particular note that i wanted to point out was monsanto (laughs) i know right we're ending with the bang on the examples here um in 2011 former monsanto vice president michael taylor was a senior advisor to the u.s food and drug administration That doesn't sound like a conflict of interest, Uh, which means a man who worked for a corporation with a near monopolization on farming in the U.S. somehow became in charge of the government body that decided how food safety is defined. Um, Islam Siddiqui, vice president of Monsanto funded lobby group CropLife, was a negotiator for the U.S. Trade Representative on Agriculture. Uh, Roger Beachy, a former director of Monsanto-funded Plant Science Center, became the director of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. And at this time, Monsanto was investing $6.5 million in lobbying. So this was all around 2010-2011. So out of all of this, um, there's this really interesting side effect of lobbying, which is its impact on economic growth. Which, you know, I like to look at things from my, like, commie trash perspective where it's like it's bad for the people and it's bad for the planet stop but I also like to look at things from the perspective of people who don't share my political views like if you're just like an average conservative or moderate in the U.S. you should still be concerned about this because it's actually bad for like the United States economy on the whole so according to an article written by John Craig and David Madland called how campaign contributions and lobbying can lead to inefficient economic policy. Okay, get ready. This is a big long quote I'm going to read because it was super interesting and I couldn't even paraphrase it. 
The primary way that campaign contributions and lobbying may dampen economic growth is via a practice known as rent seeking. The process of seeking income through special government favors rather than through productive economic activity. When firms and individuals engage in rent seeking behavior, it has several negative effects on economic growth. Not only do people spend more time and money trying to get a bigger piece of the economic pie for themselves rather than trying to enlarge the pie, but the policies they seek are often wasteful, inefficient, and even harmful. If rent seeking is a successful strategy for businesses or individuals, it can impose great harm on society by slowing or even stopping economic growth. As Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz explains, rent seeking not only wastes tax dollars on unnecessary or inefficient projects, redistributing money from one part of society to the rent seekers, but it is a centripetal force that hollows out the economy because the rewards of rent seeking become so outsized that more and more energy is directed toward it at the expense of everything else. Most economists agree that rent seeking causes a net societal loss that harms the economy. I thought that was super interesting because, you know, you've talked about this before. We were like, doing the right thing is actually better for everybody. It's cheaper and the, the fiscal conservatives should care about this even. This is another example of that. It's like cutting these campaign contributions and lobbying and the influence that money from these major companies has over government is actually better for the economy and if you are a person inclined to benefit from the economy doing well yeah it's so funny that doing the right thing is not only like if you are a conservative or moderate person it's not only like financially beneficial like if you are a social conservative it is beneficial because you are socially doing the right thing <laughs> yeah and in addition to all of this there's also um obvious economic impacts of lobbying to reduce corporate taxes, which is major. So one study found that increasing lobbying reduces a corporation's effective tax rate with an increase of 1% in lobbying expenditures expected to reduce the corporate's corporation's next year tax rate between 0.5 percentage points and 1.6 percentage points. Mm -hmm. So we all know that Jeff Bezos recently paid an effective income tax rate of 0.98% in one year. And remember, Amazon is a leading corporate lobbyist in the U.S., which, like, cue the that's suspicious audio. Like, hello. like Ooh, me with my, my Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass. Yeah. I think I see something here. Yeah, and that's tax revenue that our government should have to be able to adequately fund programs we actually need and support things, you know, it's just not fair that like we as average Americans pay 30% of our income in taxes, but Jeff Bezos only pays 0.98%. And it's because he's rich enough to pay people to go lobby for special interest related to not only him, but the company that he is CEO of. Mm -hmm. And another study based on data from 48 different states found that $1 corporate campaign contribution is worth $6.65 in lower state corporate taxes. So this is happening at the state level as well. Um, and how this compares to other countries is really interesting because there are only two, 22 countries in the U.S. that even regulate lobbying. So it's pretty common here, but there are unique things about the United States that make it manifest a little differently. So while lobbying exists in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., it's a bit different in places like Europe, for example. In the European Union, policymakers are often appointed rather than elected, meaning they aren't constantly seeking contributions for campaigns for re-election. Instead of spending uh, time on fundraising, they're instead focused on crafting policies that they think will actually help people, um, although this does have the disadvantage of being less democratic overall. Despite this, though, according to Christine Mahoney's Politico article, Why Lobbying in America is Different, quote, another big quote, sorry, it was interesting, 
In the first large-scale comparative study of the two systems, researching the work of 150 lobbyists fighting over 47 different policy institutes, half in the U.S. and half in the EU, I found that the majority of advocates in the EU attained a compromised success. They got some of what they wanted, but so too did their opponents. Policy outcomes in the EU were more balanced, but they took into consideration the input of all sides. In the U.S., we see more winner-take-all outcomes, with some advocates getting everything they want while others get nothing. If we break down lobbying success by the type of lobbyist, a more troubling picture emerges. We see that more often than not, it is industry and business interests that win. In the US, 89% of corporations and 53% of trade associations succeeded. While the majority of those fighting for the broader good, 60% of citizen groups and 63% of foundations fail in their lobbying goals. This is because legislators in the US are beholden to the wealthy interests that will underwrite their next reelection bid. In the EU, we see that the industry often wins as well. The success rates are 57% for trade associations, associations and 61% for lobbying firms, but citizen groups and foundations fighting for the public good win at equal rates of 56% and 67%. Policymakers in the EU do not need industry's euros, so we do not see that same level of pandering to their interests, end quote. Give me thoughts on that. Yeah, I was just thinking about this like winner take all attitude we have in like business and government where it's like, I win, fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's like, a cultural I, thing. I was, yeah, I'm like, wow, that is a real cultural thing here where it's like when you have that attitude, like instead of just being like, oh, like why don't we try to make it work for everyone or like collaborative or just being like, oh, well, we got our thing. Let's try to like make it work out. And how like just fucked up and like because ultimately if you're just like well I made the most money so I learned how to not pay taxes that's how it is like yeah. survival of the fittest and I'm like well that winner take all survival of the fittest attitude this like Anne Rand shit ultimately seems really fucking lonely and depressing to me because what ultimately ends is there's one person who climbs up to the top of the pyramid and then you're by yourself we're like social creatures and yes. I always like I think about like <clears throat> Scrooge like Citizen Kane like miserly people and it's we're like we're all in the all the stories we've told through history people who do that who are selfish and take all the stuff for themselves ultimately end up lonely and outcast with only stuff to make them happy but now we have this idea where it's like oh well that's you know money does buy happiness and all that. I don't know I'm going off on a tangent here but I just think that there's something, something so deeply sad and flawed about this winner-take-all mentality. And I just wonder why, like, where it comes from. And I'm like, well, then I'm like, oh, who's, when you pull off the, you know, the villain mask and Scooby-Doo, oh, it's capitalism. Yeah, it's capitalism and it's white colonialism. I remember mm-hmm. one time I was reading this, like, indigenous historian talking about an indigenous, like, civilization, like, here on what's now the United States, right? But I can't remember the specific tribe, but basically... Um, this historian was talking about how in uh, the the culture that was there, when one person took more than, than they needed, like, that was viewed as, like, oh, they're not well. Like, they don't understand. They've taken more than they needed, and we all are, like, showing pity for them because they are in a position where their, their head's not in the right space. Yeah. They're not working properly. And I thought that was really interesting because it's, like, really symbolic of like a weird like white colonial cultural mindset of just take it all because who fucking knows maybe I will need it or maybe it shows that I'm a winner and that's important to me on some fundamental level whatever the case but a thing that I thought was really interesting about this is the idea of like compromise in politics because here in the United States um what we see a lot is that when Democrats rise to power they're often they they make a big show of compromise 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 with the Republicans 
And we get really jaded by that because nothing ends up happening. And the Republicans aren't compromising with the Democrats. And what it really seems like is the Democrats are this centrist or even center-right party that try to market themselves as being vaguely left. But the second they get a lot of power, they realize that the campaign lines that they're giving to their 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 base uh, don't align with the special interests they now must mm-hmm. serve in like giving back to these political lobbyists who have bought and sold them. So instead what they do is say, oh, well, we're trying to compromise with the Republicans so they can kind of make the Republicans look like the bad guys and take the fall for them. When in reality, it's not like they actually want to change things either. It's not like they want to go after these corporations or raise wages or raise regulations or restrictions because these corporations are funding them too. Yeah. And what I mean by compromise, like I feel like when people try to, like, now in, like, Democrat-Republican world, like, try to compromise. That's, like, fake compromise. It's not real. It's not real. It's a political theater. I, like, if we were actually trying to make, like, compromise with other people, it's like when you make compromise at the office where we, like, we agree not to microwave fish. Yes. But we can all use the microwave for coffee. Yes. Or something, you know, that is a compromise. Yeah. No, and, but it's interesting, though, because then you look at, like, like, we look at, um, I feel like within the past 15, 20 years, uh, the United States has started to look around and realize, like, oh, wow, all these other countries have a lot of shit we don't have. Like, they're further along than us. Like, all these different countries are doing things so much better than us. And it has been those, like, slow, steady, small compromises over time that progressively built, like, a foundation where they're just moving forward a little more, a little more, a little more all the time. And, like, maybe, like, our – I don't know. It's very interesting because, like, our whole political arena is obviously so greatly flawed and we don't even have, like, true, like – leftist candidates or leftist ideologies like that are able to break through to the forefront you know like you see these people in other countries talk about our political party system and they're like oh your democrats are our right wing your republicans would be our extremist far right here like we don't have that and it's like we have been so hung up on you know like our weird like party politics that are all political theater anyway and don't actually change anything that we have failed to also do the incremental changes that could come well and i think when it because i keep thinking like you know you always want like the root you want like the panacea that would fix everything right and you know i feel like maybe there's not you know of course there's never just one thing because things are really complex and nuanced right. but i'm just like wow i just feel like things can't change because one like the way that you elect people here is based on campaign being financed by outside groups and not the government so of course it's biased in towards corporations and not towards regular people like two like it's hard like I feel like fundamentally like the way our government is set up needs to be changed there's 50 senators for 300 million people there's you know how 400 house for 300 million people it's kind of out of date to me and like ranked voting and I'm like well why can't we like why is it more easy to change stuff like that and I'm like well first of all you got the lobbying you know you got the way that this the, the system set up it's like impossible to change the system how it is because the people who would have to change the system are already in the government and they're benefiting from the current and system. also like the military here like is really like wild yeah. like i'm like wow like if if not you know saying that there's like revolution needs to happen or anything like not saying that that but it's like damn like our government has like fucking nukes and shit and tanks we have the biggest military in the world so it seems like just the presence of that seems like it's hard for things to change because our society is so militaristic you know what right. i mean it's like i what don't are know your, here, so like you've got all your avenues for change right you've got like revolution 
that's like on one far end and then you've got like uh just vote and that'll change everything which is like that's not gonna that's not gonna change everything you know and then there has to be something that like is the compromise where you understand like this system is flawed capitalism is flawed and it is not sustainable in our lifetimes we have seen capitalism implode on itself twice like there there is got to be something better than capitalism it is failing it is failing all of us and understanding that like okay when I was a teenager I thought the revolution was going to come tomorrow and now I'm 35 and guess what it didn't and I didn't save for my retirement because I didn't think that that was you know and I talk about this with my friends who are also in high school with me like reading leftist literature and you know one of my friends like yeah I literally thought the revolution was going to happen before I graduated from college so what was the point of anything and then you kind of realize like okay everything moves a lot slower than I want it to everything moves a lot slower than I thought it would at what point is like are do you spend your efforts trying to fix these small incremental things here and how much of your energy do you push towards making these little relatively small policy changes that seem to take forever because they actually are really really huge to the people in power and how do you divide your time and energy between your like idealistic pipe dreams and what you need to do today to get through the day and what mm-hmm. you think is actually realistic and tangible that could be done maybe now ish to help people and I think like that's where you exist in this political spectrum you see like the political theater playing out in front of you and you're like none of this is relevant to my life you see all the corruption we have at every single level and you're like well that's super fucked up and seems like it should change and then you fall down the rabbit hole of well everything should change so what's the point of caring about this one thing if the whole system is so flawed yeah and it's like i mean i think you know one thing that would i mean i just feel like there shouldn't be any lobbying in government and if you work in government like there should be ranked voting which would make like if you're gonna go with the system we have now just that would be the simplest thing would be like get rid of like campaign stuff you you know like where corporations can donate to campaigns but that's like impossible with the supreme court decision that it's like ranked voting make it super easy for people to vote have it be super easy to be a representative of your government or be super easy to like be a specialist in something and not have to worry about politics and your job for example like oh building roads infrastructure just day-to-day shit and I am not smart and I know that there there are people who like dedicate their lives to like understanding this stuff and I'm just like dang just with like a couple changes things could go very far <laughs> so actually it's interesting that those are the changes you came up with because uh, those are the changes i came up with too and I oh, did really? some research on them. <laughs> yeah so i have a whole section here in my notes called what should be done short term and um obviously we all dream of a utopia far removed from these issues but in lieu of that what can be done short term to help address this issue where we stand now in the u.s is it all too late and the answer is no there are two things that would actually dramatically help reduce the influence corporations have over our lawmaking here in the u.s and the first is campaign finance reform which is why campaign finance reform when you hear it it sounds so boring it sounds like it doesn't make an impact but it actually does make an impact um according to the conversation.com the amount of money spent on u.s elections eclipses the total economic output of small countries <laughs> So in 2020, the presidential election estimated a total of $11 billion in election funds raised. And this idea um, that we have to pay for all of our campaigning to be seen to compete is what makes politicians uniquely susceptible to influence from corporations with a lot of money. So while campaign financing has always been a uniquely weird issue in the U.S., the 2010 Citizens United Supreme Court ruling, which I think you were just referencing, that restrictions on independent campaign spending by corporations and labor unions were unconstitutional due to their restrictions on freedom of speech, just made these things even worse. So according to Thomas E. Mann from Brookings, 
This is a big quote again, but I think it's interesting. The present system of congressional campaign finance has three serious deficiencies. The high cost of running a serious campaign for the House and Senate shrinks the pool of able individuals willing to become candidates, limiting the field to those with personal wealth or the stomach for nonstop fundraising. That kind of ties in with what you were talking mm-hmm. about, about how like more average people need to have access to like becoming politicians. Expensive campaigns also lead members of Congress to become consumed, if not obsessed, with raising money. Fundraising has become a way of life for members, adding to the frenetic quality of their schedules, distorting how they would otherwise allocate their time, and diminishing opportunities for face-to-face deliberation on serious problems confronting the country. The money chase has added to the tendency of members to commit positions early, often eliminating the prospect of debate and deliberation, changing minds, or shaping outcomes. A second problem with the system is the conflict of interest, real and perceived, that results when members seek and receive campaign contributions from individuals and organizations with direct interest in matters pending in Congress. The populist version of this critique, drawing its strength from the regular diet of stories on PAC contributions, National Party soft money, and Washington fundraisers, is that politicians are routinely bought and sold by special interests. But one needn't be a complete cynic to sympathize with those that argue that moneyed interests are more likely to attract the attention and energy of members of Congress than ordinary constituents. Indeed, one of the most distasteful aspects of the present system is the brazenness with which some politicians pressure lobbyists for campaign contributions, a practice is not unreasonable to label legal extortion. A third deficiency with the present system of financing congressional campaigns is its failure to generate adequate information about the choice of candidates in House and Senate races across the country. Most Americans know precious little about their representatives in Congress. They know even less about the men and women who challenge these elected officials. While some inequality in resources between incumbents and challengers is inevitable, campaigns have no hope of fulfilling their proper role in our democracy if the means are not present to convey to the electorate the most basic information about the candidates and their platforms. End quote. So the opaque and murky nature of campaign contributions in the U.S. has made lobbyists and super PACs, which according to the Federal Election Commission, are independent expenditure-only political committees that may receive unlimited contributions from individuals, Um, corporations, labor unions, and other political action committees for the purpose of financing independent expenditures and other independent political activities. Sorry, that was a mouthful in that definition. They've made them into like shadow political parties, which are allowed to raise funds and run their own campaigns independent of candidates. They're running their own political campaigns all the time. They're just faceless, which was a really interesting um, idea to me to like think about. According to the conversation, they are subject to fewer regulations due to the constitutional protection of freedom of speech. And they are often able to raise money from anonymous sources due to legal loopholes and are permitted to receive unlimited donations from corporate and union sources. After Citizens United, campaign revenue candidates received went up nearly 600% in just one presidential election cycle. So that Supreme Court ruling just made it okay to give as much money as you want, basically. And we saw that play out huge, huge amounts with how much money these politicians were receiving from special interest groups. The need for ever-increasing campaign donations to compete in elections makes U.S. politicians uniquely susceptible to lobbying. However, other countries have successfully capped election spending, which helps with these issues. So in the U.K., election spending is limited so that each party cannot spend more than $29.5 million in the year before the election. In Norway, government spending... Uh, Government funding actually accounted for 74% of political parties' income in 2010. And unlike in the U.S. where candidates and their supporters can buy as much television time as they can afford, political ads are banned from television and radio. 
So that's pretty interesting. Hmm. In Canada, the longest campaigning for political office lasted around 10 and a half weeks. And that was back in 1926. They don't have these long pageant style years long campaigns. Uh, In Germany, political parties released just one 90 second television ad. Uh, Parties are given airtime on two public television networks based on their performance in the past elections and the size of their party. And that in the 2013 election, Politico reported that this amounted to eight ads on every channel for the major parties for the entire campaign. Uh, Voter registration is automatic in Sweden and Australia. uh, And in Australia, voting is compulsory, uh, both of which makes a lot less convincing necessary, as well as diminishing the socioeconomic bias in voter turnout, which is a major issue here. We have a lot of um, voter suppression. A lot of people spend a lot of money to make sure certain types of people don't vote. Mm -hmm. And that also goes into what candidates get elected and where money is going. This translates into campaigns being more about message than about incendiary content meant to frighten people into voting for one candidate lest the other destroy their way of life, which Mm -hmm. is kind of how political campaigning happens here. And on a similar note, in Brazil, election day is on the weekend. Ours is usually on a Tuesday. Yeah. Super inaccessible. Uh, Timothy Werner, assistant professor of business, government, and society at the University of Texas, and John C. Coleman, the chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin, found that when stronger campaign finance laws are enacted at the state level, new pro-management anti-takeover laws are less likely to be enacted. So if we had something at the federal level helping these types of things so that campaign finances are actually monitored and it's not allowed to, like I said, just become this huge pageant, then what you see is people actually caring more about issues and you have politicians less susceptible to bribery, you know, because that's really what it is. It's Mm -hmm. bribery. Um, There's also this other idea I thought about, which is non-compete agreements. Have you ever worked at a place where you had to sign a non-compete? No. Okay, I have. So in fashion, a lot I've had it do like um, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and non-competes, which are really common in the private sector. And it just means that a non-compete is like, if you decide to work here, you're agreeing you will not work for any of our competitors for X amount of time after you leave here or while you work here. And it's designed to kind of like prevent corporate espionage or like trade secrets being leaked. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens like for average people often. Like a, a really common example for like people we know is like say you get a job at like Crossroads or like Buffalo Exchange. Maybe not Buffalo Exchange. But some of these resale places mm-hmm. when you sign up to work there you're agreeing you will not sell vintage on your own. Which is a really specific agreement. I just know it because we know vintage yeah. people. And that's super fucked up because usually these places pay you minimum wage. So you're like well I can't and they give you part time hours. So you're like I can't support myself on minimum wage part time but also this is my only skill and you're not letting me do it on my own or for another company. I can only do it for you, but it's also the only skill I have that makes me hireable to anybody and it makes me hireable to you. So it's like this weird fucked yeah. up thing. But the weird thing is like, we have to deal with this all the time, but these politicians aren't really dealing with this. So we do have some wait time requirements before politicians can legally retire from government to work in lobbying and they're called cooling off periods. Um, they're usually between six months to two years, but they have a ton of exceptions and even that's not enough time. It's like two years in the world of like politics, that's half a presidential term, you know? You could work at a presidential term, leave it, and then become a lobbyist within that same term and still know all the same people and Mm -hmm. have all those connections. And when taking into account the fact that shadow lobbying regularly happens while politicians are still serving in office, we can see that these things are actually enforced. So Congress is currently attempting to repeal non-compete agreements in the private sector, where a signed document would prohibit employees from working at a similar company within a certain amount of time after leaving one company. So, you know, like I said, these are meant to limit trade secrets from being shared between competitors. However, in the public sector, increased emphasis on a non-compete style of legislation 
a legislator legislature <laughs> mandating permanent cooling off periods where no politician could legally lobby along with increased accountability could actually do a lot of good prohibiting politicians from acting as lobbyists in the private sector after retiring from a public service permanently until then the fact remains that capitalism run amok has created a corporate oligarchy in the u.s wherein our elected officials and unelected big business interests are intertwined to serve corporate interests above all else mm. dun 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 so what do you think about all of this <laughs> it's i'm trying not to feel depressed about that i feel like there definitely is a way forward and i just i wish it were so much easier for just the average you know person to just you know have a say in what like the the most you know big things about our government is like health care housing you know all that stuff and it's like oh wow it's really just in the hands of a few people but it's like if you want to be you know a politician or get into stuff like that it's like a fucking hell ride of campaign contributions and like media blitzes and it's like i feel like this is not how it is meant to be yeah for sure i thought it was interesting that she brought up like runoff voting like ranked choice voting because mm-hmm. i think that that is such a major thing and i feel like we ignore that a lot but i think um you know for anybody who doesn't know like runoff and ranked choice voting it's where you vote for who you want to like be in a position but you also vote for who you want to be in if that person doesn't win and you usually get like three sometimes even five opportunities to vote and all of them are kind of taken into account together like if your first person gets knocked out then your second choice is who they take into yeah. account to see and that is actually like really useful at um like platforming third party mm-hmm. like representatives into positions of relative power which is probably also why we can't have ranked choice voting <laughs> yeah and it's like there's not enough political parties here that's right. just like two sides of the same coin and well the other ones we do have are extremely ineffectual they yeah. can't actually do anything yeah and it's just like the way that it's set up it's not it's it really I feel like it's like designed so that the majority of people have very little political power because we're all focusing on paying our rent paying food to eat like mm-hmm. like healthcare, like that's where all our time like I would dare say the majority of most people's time is just like trying to put a roof over their head and food in their mouth survival mode yeah survival mode and we talked about this in the last episode too but like even like us like being like okay now we're lower middle class that feels super good it feels great I feel like I'm still in survival mode because now my brain just shifted to what am I going to do for my retirement Right. So now that my basic needs are met, I'm like, okay, I have housing, I have food, you know, I have healthcare, which is really expensive and should be free for everybody anyway. But it's like now that that is like handled, there's just always a new struggle that you need to try to survive because we have so few social safety nets here, you mm-hmm. know? Like we have our retirement in the United States is called Social Security. They've been telling us for my whole life, probably your whole life, that it, we're going to run out of money in our Social Security fund because the baby boomer generation was so large and we're living so much longer that there's like not enough money for people in our generation to retire and count on Social Security. Mm-hmm. And even if you do get Social Security, the average Social Security check is $1,400 a month, which is not livable for many people in the United States. And, you know, so like there's always this new struggle you need to focus on. And it is hard to pay attention to politics when you're in survival mode. And it is hard to feel like 
voting does anything and obviously voting doesn't isn't going to change the united states like it's not it can't change enough but i think there are a few things it could do and i think it's the shit that isn't highly sensationalized or talked about that much for sure so i feel like the places where you can actually vote to make a change is on legislation like this like who controls lobbying like nobody's really talking about that unless you have a specialized interest in politics Mm -hmm. the average person is like what the fuck is lobbying you know and i think these are the areas where you can maybe do some good if you're able to get through to people and be like oh this actually does matter for these things and it's so niche and specific that maybe we could do something about it or like campaign finance reform you know like maybe we could do something about campaign finance reform even though it's not going to fix everything and it's not going to change our day-to-day maybe it would change a little yeah and like doing like doing stuff locally i feel like local level like stuff like that where it's like you can make an impact you know from the ground up even lobbying in like uh state level like Mm -hmm. that's the thing you could get really active on because every single state actually has its own rules for how state lobbying works Mm -hmm. for state laws and like that's a really cool thing to look into like how lobbying works in your state and what you could do to help impact that or make a big difference there if i'm going into full like sci-fi mode like i'm like i'm like i feel like i definitely like have not thought this through but i'm like what if like everybody could be involved in the government or like they like it was just easy for like a a joe schmo like you or i to fucking just like oh we like are in the parliament and we got like um like jury duty you're just like oh well i'm president i got i got like the lottery and i'm president for this week or like something like that where it's just like i feel like there is like something outside of the box where there is some way for the majority of people to figure out ways to make our society better and work together in a way that is not drudgery and like where it's like yay we're just like we're partying and we're figuring out a way to make the roads better and for us to all get around and like there are some people who know a lot about this stuff but the rest of us are people who use it so we're like trying to get like you know I don't know I feel like there's like I haven't thought this through, but I feel like there. I will think of a sci-fi way to, uh, to <laughs> no. get this point across. <laughs> I like it. No, no. The thing I like is like I like the idea of decentralized, like a horizontal, obviously organization with no hierarchy. But I also like the idea of delegates, like delegating somebody, like oh, like you know a lot about this. Let's have you be in charge of this thing, and everyone just agrees, like yeah, this is the person who's going to best represent our interests. Like in this, it's like still democratic, and you appoint people to like help carry the torch in areas they know a lot about but like big brain moment is like well all of this can only happen if there's no money <laughs> exactly like, it's no like money that's the thing it's like every the, the thing is is like we have to get rid of the money get rid of the money get rid of the government because that way you're just, just like, like okay now we got to figure out how things happen and we don't have to worry about like paying for stuff or getting what we need we can just get it all yes yeah and I don't know, but until then, obviously, yeah, like I said, it's like you live in this, you exist in this state where you're like, well, here's everything I want to happen, and then you're like, well, that's, who knows when that, or how that, okay, all right, what can I do now with what I've got, and then you're like, God, it's not a lot, I can't do a whole lot, but maybe there's these little things that we can start to pay attention to, you know, like, I think, like, after doing all this research, I'll probably pay attention to when I hear about, like, PACs and super PACs and lobbyists, I'll probably, like, pay attention a little more, because I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what those do, and they do a lot. They're in control of a lot, you Mm -hmm. know? Or, I don't know, even, like, 
the increased like need for unions to represent workers' interests. Yeah. Like that's a good short term thing we could do. Like we should be talking more about unions we to should... represent the workers yeah. and what we need because, because that's democratic. That's democratic and that has power that could, you know, feasibly potentially compete with these these big corporate interests you know like if you have the corporation with all the money but then you have the union with all the people it's like okay well what do you need for to get reelected? you need money but you need votes and if your union is big enough and you come together and you're like what the fuck you know like those are your voters there they are and you see them in numbers and you can count them and they have a tangible demand so it's like unions need to come back as well but unfortunately lobbyists have done such a good job of this like psyops campaign to make people think unions are the devil that Nobody wants to join a union. Yeah. What we don't need any more lobbyist boom boom rooms. No. We need unions for everybody. Unions for everybody. That's it. Anyway, yeah. I think we just solved the problem of lobbying (laughs) in the United States. I'm very proud of us. Thank you for listening to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. Um, If you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon where you can subscribe for $2 a month, you can leave us um, a voicemail um, asking us your questions, life questions, general questions, just, you know, questions. Um, if you do not want to spend $2 a month, we still love you. Keep your $2 a month. Um, and we generally will answer questions off the Patreons uh, every now and then and in special bonus episodes. Thanks. Love ya.